A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A bizarre plot to take down the president. Federal investigators got nonsensical rantings and ravings of a twisted mind. A legendary beast of the Wisconsin wild. This beast was going to eat him. And the elusive woman behind a devastating epidemic. He's accusing her of having poisoned people. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. From Independence Hall to the Liberty Bell, Philadelphia tells the tale of our democracy's beginnings. But it is also home to an institution that chronicles a less celebrated tradition, Temple University's Historical Dental Museum. Its collection showcases vintage instruments and equipment of the trade. But there is one artifact on display that exposes the roots of a gruesome and gripping yarn. It stands about 11 and a half inches tall, constructed of wood, and it is comprised of human teeth. As author and journalist James Winbrandt can attest, this bucket holds the story of a provocative and controversial pioneer. This man was an innovator, a maverick, a showman, and a thorn in the side of the establishment in all his doings. Who is behind this jaw-dropping relic? And how did he change the face of the nation forever? Brooklyn, New York, 1898. A dental school grad is eager to get his career on track. His name is Edgar Parker. The young dentist has sunk all of his savings into establishing a new practice. But there's just one problem. No one was coming, he had no customers, he was struggling just to pay his rent. These are difficult times for the young field of dentistry. The tools of the trade are crude and torturous, and the industry is overrun by charlatans. It was very unregulated, and one went to receive oral health care with great trepidation and fear. As Parker contemplates his impending ruin, an unlikely ally steps in, William Beebe. William Beebe was the rent collector for Parker's landlord. 
But in his previous career, Beeb worked for the world's consummate showman, P.T. Barnum. Beeb advises Parker that if he wanted to be a success, he would have to advertise just as P.T. Barnum, his former employer, had done. Barnum used fantastic publicity stunts and exaggerated claims to promote the greatest show on earth. And Beeb proposes using those same techniques to draw people to the dentist's practice. But the tactic is not without risk. You weren't allowed to advertise if you were an ethical dentist. The idea was you would join the dental society and by word of mouth, people would meet you, know you're a dentist and do business with you. With his back against the wall, Parker hires Beeb to manage his career. The first thing Beeb does is to bestow on the young dentist a memorable moniker. Beeb told him, you are now painless Parker. That is your name. And after schooling his protege in the art of showmanship, Beeb pushes Parker onto the stage. Beeb began putting on shows in front of the building with the acrobats, with jugglers, and you had bands, you had wild animals drawing huge crowds. As the rapt spectators watch in amazement, Painless Parker steps into the spotlight and begins his oration. Parker would get up and deliver a sermon on the evils of neglecting one's oral health. After a rousing speech, he proposes to pull anyone's troublesome teeth at 50 cents a pop, offering a $5 reward should they experience any pain. Trepidatious patients take to the stage and Parker swiftly pulls their teeth, dropping them into a bucket, the same one on display at the Historical Dental Museum. It seems the dentist's bold proclamations are true. The strategy proved immensely successful. Soon, people were flocking to his second floor dental office. He was becoming fabulously wealthy. But Parker's growing fame and fortune attract the scorn of the wider dental community. His constant advertising and his claims of being the best was something that they felt was a very much a denigration of the practice. And the dental society will stop at nothing to root out this shameless showman. The dental profession tried everything they could to stop him. In 1914, the Dental Society attempts to prevent members from advertising under a fake name. But Parker responds with a bit of cunning. He changed his name legally to Painless and continued right on. Then the Dental Society tries to prevent any dentist from advertising his services. They claim it's meant to protect the public against charlatans who publicize their superior expertise. According to the dental profession, one dentist is just as good as another. But the new bylaw proves unenforceable. Over time, Parker's practice flourishes, and he establishes a chain of 28 dental offices, making him a multimillionaire. His success continues until he passes away in 1952 at the age of 80. By the time Parker dies, painless dentistry has become common practice with the advent of a local anesthetic called Novocaine. So before the arrival of this wonder drug, how did Parker achieve his remarkable early success? 
it seems the dentist employed his own form of anesthetic. A dram of whiskey, some cocaine, and barring all else, the blare of a brass band does wonders for drowning out any screams from those that do feel the pain. Today, painless Parker's bucket of teeth is displayed at the Historical Dental Museum as a reminder of how one man challenged a profession and ushered in the modern dental age. New York City's Lower Manhattan was once the crowded home of millions of early American immigrants. And many of their stories can be found in a highly secured building across the street from City Hall, the New York County Clerk Archives. One of the largest collections of court records in the country, these halls tell the tales of countless New Yorkers, from the indictment of Aaron Burr to the naturalization of Irving Berlin. But one file tucked amongst the rest tells the tragic story of a scandal that once brought terror and panic to the streets of New York. These pages are brittle. They're falling apart. They're rare. They're typed. They are really over a century old now. It's the only documents we still have of this sorry period of time. What part did these pages play in a deadly epidemic that ravaged New York City? 1906, Long Island. The families of New York's elite are enjoying their tranquil summer estates. Miles away from the filth and noise of the city, they indulge in carefree activities, attended to by a staff of servants, drivers, and cooks. But soon, the summer calm is shattered when seven different estates report an outbreak of deadly typhoid fever. Typhoid fever was a disease that was brought about because of impure water. The illness causes fever, delirium, and abdominal pain, and if left untreated, is fatal. Commonly found in poorer neighborhoods, typhoid is almost unheard of in the upper class. Wealthier communities either had pure water or they had sanitation or they had less crowding. This outbreak so far has infected 26 individuals and resulted in three deaths. And one man is determined to uncover the source. Dr. George Soper is an epidemiologist working for the city's Department of Sanitation. He immediately begins to scrutinize the affected estates. Was it the water supply in the house? Was it the well? Where was it coming from? A test of the afflicted family's water supply reveals it to be clean, so Soper broadens his search. It was not unnatural for him to look among the poorest in that household, which were the servants. Upon speaking to the staff of the affected homes, he discovers one common denominator, a cook named Mary Mallon. Mary was the one person who was in these different households, all of whom had these outbreaks. Soper discovers that Mary is a healthy 37-year-old Irish immigrant known for her strong will. But when he goes to confront the cook, she's nowhere to be found. From Soper's point of view, that probably looked very suspicious. How is this seemingly healthy woman leaving a trail of disease and death? And can she be stopped? It's 1906, New York. 
Dr. George Soper has traced a series of deadly typhoid cases to a single source, a cook named Mary Mallon. But when he tries to track down this seemingly contagious woman, she has vanished. So will Soper catch Mary Mallon before it's too late? After months of searching for Mary Mallon, Soper receives a call about a new case. Another outbreak of typhoid in a wealthy family, which again was pretty rare, occurred on Park Avenue. The doctor rushes to the scene, where he discovers none other than Mary Mallon. He goes and confronts Mary. He's accusing her of having poisoned people, of having killed children, of having diseased entire families. And she does not react well to that. The indignant Mary rebuffs Soper, but the doctor persists. He comes back with a police force. Mary is arrested and forced to submit to testing. The results, now held in the New York County Clerk's archives, reveal that she is indeed infected with typhoid. But how could this woman, who appears to be the picture of health, be so highly contagious? She had never felt sick a day in her life. Dr. Soper develops a theory that the sick are not the only ones who can pass on disease. He posits that certain individuals can be infected and highly contagious, but otherwise unaffected by the illness. An asymptomatic carrier. He was discovering a whole new way in which disease was transmitted through human beings who were carrying bacteria that they didn't even know about. Dr. Soper is determined to protect the public and prevent Mary from spreading typhoid once again. He basically puts her in prison. An outraged Mary is isolated on New York City's North Brother Island Hospital. The story hits the press and quickly spreads. She gains the moniker, the name Typhoid Mary. She loses her identity. She's now a symbol of the dangers of, of immigration. It was unbelievable to her that in a free society that this could happen. For three long years, Mary fights for her freedom. And finally, with typhoid fever cases waning and public hysteria at bay, she is released. What they did is they released her and they demanded of her that she never again cook. Mary agrees, changes her name, and fades back into city life. But five years later, George Soper receives a disturbing call. There's another outbreak of typhoid. The doctor is quickly on the scene. And there, in the kitchen, he finds the one and only Mary Mallon. She went back into the kitchen, and uh, that was her undoing. Mary is returned to isolation on North Brother Island. There, she spends the rest of her life. It's a tragic story. Mary Mallon is accused of infecting at least 50 people with typhoid. Three of these cases result in death. In the wake of the case, Soper publishes his revolutionary findings, fundamentally transforming medicine's understanding of how disease is spread. And today, these test results, tucked away in the county clerk's archives, reminds us of the truth behind the legend of Typhoid Mary and the medical discoveries that resulted from one of America's most infamous epidemics. In 1870, the founders of Rhinelander, Wisconsin, saw the lush forests and rushing rivers of the area as the perfect location for a thriving lumber mill. 
And today, the Rhinelander Logging Museum celebrates the traditions of the booming industry they helped establish. The cant hooks, the PVs, the picaroons, these are all tools of the trade that the loggers used back in the 1800s. But the most compelling object in the collection is not a tool of the lumber trade. This artifact has horns all the way down its back. It has a vicious, mean tail. It has red eyes, which can scare the living daylights out of you. According to curator April Roski, this mysterious monster once terrorized the men who toiled in the Wisconsin woods. The word did get out that it was real and it was vicious and it was mean. What is this hideous beast? And how did it change this town forever? October 1893, Rhinelander, Wisconsin. An energetic local woodsman named Gene Shepard sets out for a hike in the nearby forest he's come to love. Gene Shepard was a timber cruiser and he moved here at the height of the lumber industry in the late 1880s. But for woodsmen like Shepard, their once stable profession has fallen on hard times. The lumber business was waning towards the turn of the century. Hours after entering the woods, Shepard runs towards town with a look of terror on his face. While hiking, he says he came face to face with a ferocious beast. He said this creature was seven feet long and he thought for sure this beast was going to eat him. According to Shepard, the brutish monster gave off a foul stench and blew flames from his nostrils. The woodsman is baffled by the encounter, but some in the community think they know what he has seen. The Chippewa or Ojibwe Indians had a mythical creature which looked very similar to what Gene Shepard was describing. It's called a Mishapeshu, or water monster, and is believed to haunt the region's many lakes. It was a creature that supposedly would just carry men off to a watery grave. Lumberjacks of yore also claimed to have encountered a similar beast that eluded capture. They called it the Hodag. Entranced by this mystery of the Wisconsin woods, Shepard embarks on a mission. He got a bunch of lumberjacks together and they tried to capture this thing. For weeks, they scour the woods in search of the elusive beast, but their efforts are fruitless. Over time, interest in the Hodag fades and soon the creature is all but forgotten. But then, three years later, in September of 1896, Gene Shepard pitches a large tent at the Rhinelander County Fair and makes a stunning declaration. He's captured a live hodag. As the fairgoers were walking through, it was dimly lit and there was a curtain. To visitors' astonishment, a long creature with spikes down its back growls ferociously and shifts around right before their eyes. Word spreads and quickly thousands of visitors travel from far and wide to Rhinelander to see for themselves the amazing monster they call the Hodag. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wisconsin, 1896. Woodsman Gene Shepard is thrilling county fairgoers with what he claims to be a captive hodag a legendary horned beast said to roam the state's north woods. So has Shepard really caught a live hodag? The story of Shepard and the hodag blazes through newspapers from coast to coast. Thousands of visitors stream into town for a glimpse of the creature, and it seems Rhinelander is poised for the national spotlight. Then, a letter from the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. stirs even more excitement. The Smithsonian was interested in finding out more about the hodag, and they were sending a team of scientists to come and look at it. But as the esteemed scientists are dispatched, Shepard tells his friends and neighbors that he has a monstrous secret. At that point, Gene Shepard did admit that the hodag was a hoax. The shifty woodsman sheepishly reveals how he pulled off the deception. He got together with one or two of his friends and they carved it out of an odd looking stump. They used an ox hide for the fur. They used horns from cattle. Next was the task of convincing fairgoers that the figure in the dimly lit cage was alive. Shepard had his sons pulling wires to make the legs move. Stunned townsfolk are left wondering, why did Shepard employ such a duplicitous scheme? The woodsman reveals that he was motivated by a powerful force, his love of Rhinelander. Because the lumber business was waning towards the turn of the century and businesses were changing, he wanted to continue the growth of Rhinelander by bringing people up here. 
So Shepard devised a brazen plot to put his cherished home in the headlines. In the end, the stunt has driven thousands to Rhinelander and ignited a new tourism trade. And the town embraces Shepard and his benevolent ruse. Did Gene Shepard put Rhinelander on the map? Yes, he did. And it was all thanks to the Hodag. Today, Rhinelander is known as Hodag City. And this baby Hodag figurine at the Rhinelander Logging Museum serves as a reminder of the enterprising man who brought both a mythical beast and a quiet town to life. The second biggest metropolis in Michigan, Grand Rapids is known as Furniture City for its massive output of interior appointments. It's also home to the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Library and Museum, which celebrates the life and career of the former Commander-in-Chief. Within its walls are a plethora of displays and exhibits that include an authentic Huey helicopter, disco-era platform shoes, and even a replica of the Oval Office. But one item in the collection speaks to a dark and shocking episode in the history of the presidency. This artifact weighs about two pounds, is about eight inches long, is made of carbon steel and has etched on the side of it, Model 1911, U.S. Army. Although issued by the military, curator Don Holloway knows that this semi-automatic pistol wasn't wielded in defense of the nation. Instead, it was employed in a brazen attack against it brandished by hands of pure evil. This object is linked to one of the most violent cults of our time. Who wielded this gun? And how did it tie the 38th president to a notorious and murderous sect? September 5th, 1975, Sacramento, California. A year after taking over the presidency from a disgraced Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford has just finished giving a speech to California business leaders. Next up, a meeting with the governor at the state capitol. Ford decides to make the easy two-block jaunt by foot. A number of people are there, his itinerary having been widely published in the press. And so he's shaking hands as he moves along toward the state capitol. But as the president basks in the well wishes of his supporters... One member of the crowd captures his gaze. She is wearing a bright red cape, and she's watching him. And he thinks perhaps she wants to talk to him. But when Ford reaches the caped woman, she makes a stunning move. She extends her hand to him, only her hand is holding a pistol. In an instant, a member of the Secret Service lunges for the assailant and separates the woman from her weapon. The same gun now on display at the Ford Library and Museum. The president is deeply shaken, but unharmed. Law enforcement officials take the would-be assassin into custody. The police figured out who the woman was. She was Lynette Alice Frome. But as police search for Frome's motives, they begin to suspect that she may not have acted alone. In fact, they find that Frome is a high-ranking member of a sinister organization, notorious for its grisly crimes, the Manson family. 
led by the infamous Charles Manson. The cult rose to prominence in the late 60s due to his grandiose personality. He had an outsized ego, and he thought of himself as a gifted philosopher. A lot of it was pseudo-Christianity that was turned from service to others to service to him. But allegiance wasn't the only thing the maniacal Manson wanted from his devotees. He also commissioned the grisly 1969 murder spree that resulted in the deaths of actress Sharon Tate and eight others in Southern California. For these gruesome crimes, he was tried and imprisoned. From who hadn't taken part in these earlier thrill kills, becomes Manson's heir apparent. The job of holding the family together falls to Lynette Frome, uh, whom he's nicknamed Squeaky because of her high-pitched voice. But after his disciple attacked President Ford, authorities begin to wonder, could Manson himself have orchestrated this attempted assassination? In September 1975, California, a woman named Lynette Squeaky Fromm has just attempted to assassinate President Gerald Ford. When it's discovered that Fromm is a follower of incarcerated cult leader Charles Manson, many are left to wonder, is Charles Manson behind the plot to kill the president? Officials rush to question the deranged leader at Folsom State Prison outside Sacramento. Federal investigators went to talk to Manson and find out whether he was pulling strings behind uh, the scenes. What they got in response was nonsensical rantings and ravings of a man who was consumed by his own twisted mind. But even without his cooperation, investigators are able to determine that Manson had no direct role in Frome's thwarted murder attempt. So what drove Squeaky Frome to assassination? After interviewing acquaintances, investigators pieced together a motive that could only have been hatched by a delusional mind, and one that still revolves around dedication to the enigmatic cult leader. Frome wanted to bring attention to what Manson saw as the harmful environmental policies of the government, including, in Frome's estimation, the Ford administration. In her mind, she would rid the government of somebody who was pretending to be a public servant but was not serving what she defined as the public good. But she was also angry over Manson's trial years earlier. Richard Nixon, who's president um, during the trial, describes Charles Manson as guilty of these murders. And Charles Manson, in part, blames Richard Nixon for having poisoned the mind of the jury. Lynette Frome largely sees... Gerald Ford as just an extension of Nixon. In November 1975, Squeaky Fromm is brought to trial and found guilty of the attempted assassination of a United States president. She is um, sentenced to life in prison. But even with her condemnation in hand, Fromm never endeavors to implicate Manson in any facet of her crime and even briefly escapes federal detention in a doomed attempt to visit the imprisoned cult leader. She never wavered in her devotion to Charles Manson. She never becomes anything less than the supportive Manson cultist that she had always been. In 2009, Lynette Squeaky Fromm is released from prison on parole. 
The gun she once wielded now rests at the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Library and Museum, serving as a dark reminder of a twisted mind and the narrow escape of her target, the 38th President of the United States. An authentic moonshine still, a model of a rum runner's boat, and the death mask of bank robber John Dillinger. These are just some of the objects on view at the Museum of the American Gangster in New York City. But among the myriad of exhibits dedicated to America's most infamous mobsters is one seemingly innocuous household item. It's very ordinary, made out of clear glass, got a screw top, paper label, it's empty. According to author Daniel Okrent, this dusty glass bottle played a pivotal role in a terrifying outbreak that sent shockwaves throughout the city. What this bottle used to contain is directly related to one of the great tragedies in New York City history and one that very few people know about. What devastating substance once filled this carafe? And how is it linked to a deadly social experiment that rocked the nation? Christmas Eve, 1926, New York City. A frightened man stumbles into the emergency room of Bellevue Hospital. He is flushed, desperate, and confused. He says Santa Claus is chasing him and trying to kill him. Clearly, he's delirious. He's hallucinating. The hospital staff is really quite struck by uh, what an odd case this is. But before they can even treat the patient, he slips into a coma and dies. And it seems this case is not isolated. Over the next few hours, dozens of people stagger into Bellevue with the same frightening symptoms. Hallucinations, paralysis, and organ failure. By the end of Christmas Day, something like 60 people had been admitted and eight of them died. Within days, this mysterious scourge kills 60 New Yorkers, while many who survive are left blinded. It was almost an epidemic, so many at once. At first, doctors are baffled as to what's causing this bizarre and deadly outbreak. Then, they notice that every patient they've treated shared one striking similarity. They had all been drinking. It's determined that it was alcohol that was killing these people. Despite the ban placed on intoxicating liquor by prohibition, alcohol is surprisingly easy to procure. In New York City alone, according to the police commissioner, there were 32,000 speakeasies. But why is booze, which has been sold on the black market for the past seven years, suddenly striking down so many drinkers? The New York City medical examiner, Charles Norris, autopsies the corpses of the dead and makes an astounding discovery. In their bodies are traces of an intoxicating chemical commonly distilled from wood, called wood alcohol. Wood alcohol is poisonous, and the larger the quantity, the more likely it would lead to the hallucinations, the brain damage, and the eventual death. It seems that the drinks consumed by scores of holiday revelers were deliberately tainted. But who has poisoned this alcohol, and why? It's December, 1926. A mysterious affliction is killing dozens of people across New York City. Investigators discover that the only link is that all the victims have consumed tainted alcohol. 
But who is poisoning the booze? And why? The answer seems to lie in the complex codes of prohibition. Ever since the 18th Amendment went into effect in 1920, the U.S. Prohibition Bureau has tried to stem the tide of illegal alcohol. But turning off the taps is a daunting task. That's because most illicit booze is brewed from a commonplace chemical. The primary source of illegal alcohol in the U.S. was industrial alcohol. Industrial alcohol, which is found in everything from perfume to paint thinner to this bottle of rubbing alcohol, is not meant for human consumption. But this obstacle is easily conquered by profit-hungry bootleggers who simply hire chemists to improve the product. The bootleggers chemists would color it, flavor it, put it in bottles and put counterfeit labels on them, and then boom, they were in speakeasies across the country. The trade in black market spirits prospers. But the Prohibition Bureau has one forceful ally, veteran activist and head of the Anti-Saloon League, Wayne B. Wheeler. Wheeler is credited with single-handedly forcing temperance on a thirsty nation. He was the most powerful figure in the country in terms of telling the government what to do. And at the height of prohibition, Wheeler is struck by an idea that he thinks will finally put an end to the trade in industrial alcohol. It was he who promoted adding poison to it, industrial alcohol. And one of the most effective poisons in the government chemist's toolbox is wood alcohol. The additive is incredibly lethal. In fact, a mere quarter cup of the toxic tonic can kill a grown man. It looks like alcohol, it smells like alcohol, but as it turns out, this was tougher to remove from industrial alcohol. And in late 1926, Wheeler lobbies the government to force all alcohol manufacturers to double the amount of wood alcohol in their product, from two to four percent. It seems like a foolproof deterrent. However, unscrupulous bootleggers don't hesitate to sell the more toxic liquor. It's believed that the consumption of this new formula may have been responsible for the rash of Christmas deaths. Of the many, many horrible things that happened as a result of prohibition, the poisoning of innocent people was among the worst. Criminal charges are never brought in the wake of the tragic casualties. And Wheeler is remorseless over the lives lost by his policy. Wheeler said, we have nothing to apologize for because people who drank this knew it was illegal and it was likely to be poisoned. And when he said that, it was the beginning of turning the country against prohibition in a big way. In 1933, the unpopular law is finally repealed. And today, this bottle that once contained industrial alcohol stands on view at the Museum of the American Gangster as a silent witness to the spirited history of prohibition and to all the lives that were lost. The town of Linthicum, Maryland, is known as the home of the bustling Baltimore-Washington Thurgood Marshall International Airport. And a few miles away is an institution that preserves some of the country's earliest transportation technology, the National Electronics Museum. On display are artifacts that played a vital role in early communications and defense. Satellites, underwater sonar devices, and an oscillograph, an instrument designed to record waveforms. But there's one artifact on display with roots in the military 
that made its greatest impact far beyond the front lines. It's a small object. It's circular with some wires sticking out of it. It's primarily made out of copper and glass. As museum director Mike Simons explains, this 40s-era instrument accidentally jolted kitchens around the world into the modern age. It's an object that could easily be overlooked, but it actually is an extremely important device in the history of the United States. What is this object? And what groundbreaking device did it become? 1941, Massachusetts. As World War II rages on in Europe, the U.S. Department of Defense is in need of new technology to help with its ever-likely entry into this conflict. And among the companies preparing the government for this undertaking is Raytheon. Raytheon was an electronics company that really came to its own in the 1940s. Probably their most significant contribution to the war effort was making components for radar. Radar, which stands for radio detection and ranging, was a concept that actually developed in the 1890s. People realized that radio waves could be bounced off a solid object, and you could judge where that object was in space and make assumptions about its speed. But now, Raytheon has just won a lucrative contract to supply the military with a new radar technology that could help win the war the magnetron. What the magnetron does is it amps up the power to radar, so it makes a smaller beam of energy so it can focus in on a target. Enhanced target accuracy means that the Allies can better identify enemy planes. And with the U.S. military needing thousands of these new magnetrons immediately, the task of fulfilling the giant order falls to the firm's lead engineer, a self-taught 51-year-old named Percy Spencer. Spencer oversees the construction of a massive new magnetron factory. And soon, Raytheon is churning out the devices at an astounding rate of 2,600 per day. Raytheon ultimately ended up producing most of the magnetrons that were used by the U.S. military. It seems the Allies' improved radar, powered by the magnetron, is helping to turn the tide. In the following years, employment swells to 16,000, and Raytheon is thriving. But in 1945, at the height of production, the long, brutal war finally comes to a close. Raytheon is, is making magnetrons by the thousands, and all of a sudden, the government says, we're done, we don't need the rest of those magnetrons. With the loss of his primary client and thousands of costly magnetrons on his hands, Spencer is in a bind. Percy Spencer and his team then had to come up with some other use for them. Otherwise, they could potentially go bankrupt. What stroke of genius will it take for Spencer to save his company from the brink? It's the 1940s in Cambridge, Massachusetts. An engineer for the Raytheon company named Percy Spencer oversees production on a specialized radar component called a magnetron. But when World War II ends and the market for magnetrons dries up, the company's future is at risk. But Percy Spencer is about to make a discovery that no one could possibly have detected. It's the fall of 1945, and Spencer is tinkering in the lab. Spencer, while passing by a magnetron, noticed that the candy bar in his pocket had melted. In an otherwise cold room, Spencer makes a remarkable realization. 
the electromagnetic energy that was being developed by a magnetron was passing through uh, the chocolate in his pocket, exciting the water molecules, creating friction, which created heat, which melted the candy. With his curiosity piqued, Spencer decides to run a test. He asked that they bring in some popcorn, and they put that in front of the magnetron as well. Of course, it popped. Spencer is struck with an epiphany. By enclosing this technology and focusing the energy, he could create a fast and efficient oven that could revolutionize the home kitchen. What the Raytheon team ultimately ended up developing was what they at that time called the radar range or the electronic oven, but what we would now call a microwave. On October 8, 1945, Raytheon applies for a patent for its cutting-edge cooking machine. And two years later, the first microwave oven hits the market. But there's a problem. The early 1940s models of the microwaves were over five feet tall and cost over $5,000. Though impractical for the average consumer, this machine does find a market. The technology was adopted early on by institutions like hospitals or schools and that were feeding lots of people and could afford the cost of those early microwaves. Raytheon continues refining its product. And in 1967, a lighter, more affordable model hits store shelves. And then it became ubiquitous across the country. Today, microwave ovens can be found in over 90% of American homes. And Percy Spencer is recognized as one of the most important figures in the development of consumer electronics. And this magnetron at the National Electronics Museum reminds us of the stroke of genius that zapped the culinary world into the future. From tainted booze to a manufactured monster, a show-stopping dentist to a deadly epidemic. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.